I want to take a minute and talk about Shop Boss. It's the ultimate solution for automotive shop management. In fact, the founder was a former shop owner himself. He was an industry guy with coding knowledge and experience who built what he wished existed for his own shop. Let's not forget about their customer service because it truly is second to none. They've invested in the people and the processes, ensuring that you receive top-notch service every step of the way. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing separate sets of books. Everything you need is built right in. ShopBoss also offers built-in DVI functionality, eliminating the need for third-party solutions. With Boss Pay, powered by 360 Payments, enjoy integrated payments with digital signature capture. And with customizable real-time reporting on the owner's dashboard, gain valuable insights into your business at a glance. See how they can simplify your auto shop at shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. Shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. That's shopboss.net forward slash gearbox. My name is Jimmy Purdy, shop owner, master tech, transmission builder, and the host of the Gearbox Podcast. Here I talk with new and seasoned shop owners as well as industry professionals about day-to-day operations within their own shops and all the failures and successes that come along the way. From what grinds your gears to having to shift gears in the automotive industry, this is the Gearbox Podcast. See your name in the top right corner of my screen. Oh, okay. All right. I'm fancier than I thought I was. <laughs> well, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for coming in and hanging out. Okay. Did you get uh, my bio? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got quite a quite a thing there. Yeah, I've been doing it a while. I'm I'm recently retired and um, still making adjustments because it's my retirement's nothing like I dreamed it was. Hmm. You think that's uncommon? Uh, yeah, mine mine's uncommon because I I hit it really lucky because I didn't make enough to retire on selling the shop, but I did make enough to retire on uh, selling the real estate, and because uh, I only owned the real estate for seven years and uh, bought it for eight hundred and fifty thousand, and seven years later I sold it for two point three million. Oh, you made it like a bandit. Yeah, I did. So uh, I'm living my pre-retirement lifestyle uh, in my retirement. I haven't had to cut back on anything. Matter of fact, I've made some home improvements, invested into some, a couple of annuities, and um, yeah, I'm I'm set. Yeah, and you're still, um, but you're still active in the in the industry. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm still active in the industry because I did. It was my identity. I mean, I had a real hard time the first year because um, it just, I didn't have to go to work every day anymore. And uh, my activity level really went down and I gained a bunch of weight. Uh, I've been retired, fully retired for three years. And uh, in three years, I've managed to gain 70 pounds. It happens just like that, huh? Yeah. I mean, just activity level went down. And, um, it just uh well it's supposed to be exciting well it is and i I still try to stay active in the industry and uh that's that's really the part i like it's got to be kind of kind of maddening a little bit i mean after that long of of uh being in the industry and being active and running a shop and then going to kind of 
in a sense going to nothing. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a huge shift. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Well, anyway, today, what I wanted to do was, uh, talk about, uh, writing accurate estimates. I like it. Well, let's do uh let's walk through your introduction then. Cause you got, you got quite an intro here. Okay. So you want to take the reins? Um, I'll let you. Yeah. So we got, uh, and, and forgive me if I mispronounce it, but is it Bloodworth? Yes, that's so correct. So Larry Bre- Bloodworth, we got, uh, you've been in the building industry since 1973. Yes. Since 1985, you got your ASC master tech certification. Yep. Yep, okay. Did you ever get the advanced or you just, you got your ASC master tech? Yeah. And you've just, kept, yeah, have you just, kept it active through your retirement as well? Uh, two of them have expired. Uh, six of them are still good till uh, 26. Are you going to look at uh, renewing them or are you going to keep them? No, no I don't see any, Yeah, I don't see any point in, you know, keeping them going in my retirement. I'll just let them go. Yeah, that makes sense. So you also went through the ATRA, which is the Automatic Transmission Rebuilders Association. You got the certification for rebuilding and diagnosing. What Was that about the same time you got your master tech? Uh, no, I did that much earlier. Uh, okay. Excuse me, I did the master tech much earlier, and I didn't do the ATR certifications till in the nineties. Okay, so it's yeah, you've you've had your uh, you definitely a veteran when it comes to that stuff to to say the least. So the majority of your of your life, you've transmission special type specialty shop, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And then you had gotten to that a little bit. You just sold your business and the real estate and uh, fully retired. Um, yeah. But you still keep your involvement in the industry. That yes, I do. Okay, but you're here. To, you're here today to talk to us about uh, profitability and writing a- accurate estimates. Yes. So we're gonna we're gonna get some some learning in today. And I don't think there's enough information. No matter how many other podcasts you listen to or what education you get, you can always always freshen up how you write an estimate because without money coming in the door, it don't matter what else you're doing. No matter how good you can fix a vehicle. If you can't write up an accurate estimate, you, you don't have a, <laughs> you got to have money. You got to have people coming in the door and you got to be making money. Otherwise it's yeah. all for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel the majority of the industry, uh, underbids their work. Um, and that's, that's a problem. I know I did for many years until I hired a business coach and he pointed it out to me because, um, I mean, it was a lot different back then. Um, when I got started in the, in the business, uh, the flat rate system, I mean, we could beat it by 50% back in the day. And, uh, I mean, three fifties and four hundreds were, um, getting bid out, uh, in the book uh, 13, 14 hours to R and R and build. And, uh, what I've seen over the years is as they come out with newer and newer transmissions, uh, the times have gone down, down, down. And, uh, it's, um, it's really challenging now. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, the title of the, of the book per se, um, you know, it, it says, uh, parts and labor guide and uh it's it's 
is not the Bible. And I, I took it as the Bible early in my career. And, uh, so, uh, one of the big things I learned over the years is, uh, on the invoice, uh, the more you write, the more you, uh, make. And I would have a paragraph for each labor operation, uh, detailing what it was. And, uh, but I wouldn't list the hours or, uh, number of hours or how much an hour. Um, I just had a lump sum. I mean, in the background, um, I would be calculating hours and how much an hour, but on the invoice, I would just list, um, what the labor cost was. And, um, and as I retired and I had to hire more people to, uh, do repairs around the house and stuff like that. Um, I find out that that's how, uh, electricians and plumbers and window guys, um, they do the same thing. They don't say how much an hour or, um, anything like that. Like, uh, we were looking at having our patio door replaced and they just come in with a lump sum of $10,000 and, uh, didn't even say how much labor, how much parts, how many hours, how much an hour, none of that. And, uh, right. I mean, a lot of it's, uh, if they tell you a time, it's just so that you can, you know, when it's going to be done. Right. Yeah. If they're doing a water heater replacement, oh, it'll, you know, we'll be there between eight and 10. It should be done between two and four. Right. Yeah. But it's, but it's still, no one's hold, held them accountable to that. If, if something happens and they got, you know, who knows what the unknowns they run across is going to be. That's yeah. just part of the job. And it is normal. It's a normalized part of any other skilled trade where you come to an auto shop and it's, Hey, I want my transmission replaced. Oh, well, the books out for eight hours. Okay. So I can drop it off in the morning. I'll be able to pick it up at the end of the day. Like, no, it's like, well, that's eight hours. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Yeah. And it's not normal. It's not normalized to say, Hey, I need an extra two hours, two hours for what? I need my car back. Like, well, (laughs) you can pick, you're more than welcome to pick it up at any time, but you can drive it away if you want to wait for me to call you, (laughs) you know? So yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. In a, in a recent, uh, ratchet wrench shop survey, uh, they found that 64, 64% of all shops, bill out over $130 an hour. And the, the flat rate system in of itself has been used and abused. And, uh, it hadn't been abused more than by anybody else, more than the new car dealerships. And, uh, I worked for about a year at a GM dealership and man, it was a struggle because they, it just, um, I mean, you couldn't beat the time. I mean, it just, uh, it, it was hard to get in 40 hours during a, a work week. Really yeah. The, the flat, the flat rate system is a, uh, is a different breed. It takes a different breed of person and it either works really well or everyone hates it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it all comes down to what, you know, like you said, getting the accurate estimate and making sure that you, you're trying to account for everything. Um, and obviously specializing in a field. So with you being a transmission specialty shop is what I am, what I started out as I've, I've slowly evolved over the last few years to really bring in more 
you know, front end work and suspension work and, you know, normal engine mechanical maintenance work. Um, I just, I just see the, the turning of the tides when it comes to these newer transmissions. And it's just very difficult to stay on the leading edge with that. I mean, with a turbo 350, 400, 700, even in the 460s, you could almost build them, put them on the, on the, on the shelf. And when something came in, you could just install the one you built last week. And yeah. there's just too many differences now. And like the six L's, you got to program them, you got to program the tech them. And, um, you just, to, to try to stock the parts it takes to keep that rebuilding process up on the business side of it. It's very, it's just, it's a lot of logistics. And, yeah. <clears throat> and I've talked cool. before about having like engine, so something coming in and they think it's a slipping transmission and it's a misfire or, or some sort of engine problem that they've, mistakenly mistaken for a transmission problem and so obviously making that shift and not sending that work out and capitalizing on that is what i've been directing towards you know yeah we well what i also learned over the years that as an average this isn't a steadfast rule on every ticket but as an average uh you should bill out uh 1.25 times the actual time uh, they get spent on the job. And uh, sometimes you'll go over that, sometimes you'll go under that, but as an average, 1.25 times. Uh, so you mean like a la- like a labor buffer on top of your estimate? Yeah, that's what you should end up when you get a report for, say, the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Or the, uh, the longer the period of time, the more accurate the average is. But uh, I wouldn't not average uh, less than 1.25 times actual time per month. And uh, Now, do you think that's average for any repair shop, or do you think that's more targeted towards like a, a specialty transmission shop? Well, that, that's what we were doing. Uh, okay. And we, we would also write canned jobs for estimates that are uh, common uh, or a repetitive repair. Um where we didn't have to go through all the, you know, trouble of writing the estimate. We just had a canned estimate, and I would edit it from there. Um, Like you mentioned the 4L60E, uh, I had a canned estimate, uh, but the total of the repair was like $6,000 because it had so many parts on it. And what I would do is just go down the parts list and edit the parts off. Uh, But... You know, all the parts were listed that I could possibly need, including hard parts. And I would just start uh, deleting the lines that didn't apply to the job. And uh, But our average RO for major transmission work was right at $3,500. And that's as of 2015. Yeah. So you, you, you stuck to just transmit, you didn't do any sort of engine mechanical or, or maintenance no, work? Okay. No, tra- transmissions only. And, uh, we averaged about 25 tickets a week and, um, about, uh, five or six, uh, rebuilds a week. And, um, but it was, um, it, I mean, a general repair shop would be, tw- they'll do 25 tickets a day. And uh, they'll have a much lower ARO. But um, as far as our transmission shop is concerned, um, we had what we called an MARO, which is major average repair order, and it was $3,500. But our, now, 
Now on those tickets, what was like, um, like an average GP on it? Like, cool. Cause when you talk about general repair versus the transmission and the one issue, well, not an issue, but one of the things I've noticed over the years when we get real heavy into the transmission side of things is that that number starts dropping when it comes to parts and trying to keep like a 55 or 60% GP on parts. Um, it's, 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 a, it's very difficult. I mean, when you talk about all the, all the different parts in the trans or if you're, you know, you get behind, you start selling some remand units that, that really starts dropping your parts down as far as what you're making on your parts. And that's one of the big issues that I've, I've run into over the years is, is you look at the reports, you look at the numbers and obviously the net is what's important. Are you making money? You're not making money. But then you look at your parts and you're like, oh, maybe I need, I need to start, you know, bumping my, my sales up on my parts. But I mean, when it comes to transmissions, I feel like it's a t- completely different world than the general auto repair. You can't, you know, well, we, we <laughs> they don't correlate. We tried to maintain a 60% gross profit margin. And uh, and I found over the years I had to uh, start using a uh, parts uh, matrix markup. In other words, I would mark up the, the small price stuff a lot more than I would the big stuff. Right. Like we wouldn't uh, mark up a torque converter for near as much as what we would mark up a master kit. And, uh, but it, it would average 60% gross profit. We tried our best to maintain that. So you'd, okay. You maintain it even with the transmissions. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, that's a lot. Yep. A lot has changed in the last eight years since I sold the shop. I mean, there's so many more transmissions that's come out, you know, the, uh, six, seven, eight, all the way up 10 speeds. And, um, it just, and what I'm seeing is a lot of people are buying uh, the parts from the dealer because that's the only place you could get them. That's true. And, and, um, yeah, it takes much more, uh, involvement, like you said, with, uh, reprogramming and, you know, rewriting the tech and just on and on. And, um, yeah, it's it's really changed, I tell you. Um, and the other thing that we did that uh, was more from a marketing perspective is that uh, we would use call tracking to know where that call came from. And uh, that is a wonderful, wonderful tool. Uh, and, you know, there's a saying that if you can't measure it, you know, you can't manage it. And that gave us a way to manage our marketing because uh, I quickly learned the yellow pages is dead because it just didn't justify the amount of business we got off the yellow pages just wasn't um, enough. And uh, the yellow pages went online and that still didn't help. And so I cut out all yellow page advertising because I was using call tracking and it just, the investment wasn't worth the return. Yeah, that's, it's definitely, a, and I've, I've talked to before about the yellow pages, how it was such a big marketing tool and, and anything from like the eighties or nineties, that was like the first thing you did. You open a business, yeah. get in the, get in the phone book. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, I know funny how shop, quickly that went away. Yeah. I know shops that would time the opening of the shop with the 
publication of the Yellow Pages. And, uh, but it's just, uh, I provided a link in my notes, uh, of just one day of call tracking in our shop. And, uh, I don't, let me see if I can get that here. Uh, yeah, it's amazing the the small tools and the small tweaks it takes, you know, and everyone I I've noticed with the seminars and going to different training events, everyone's always looking for that that magic pill or that magic formula or that that magic sauce, right? That makes you a bunch of money and it's uh or or makes you successful. Yeah. And it just seems like it's all these small, small tweaks that you make, you know, or what they call finding the, the, the little golden nuggets and the, and the things you can take away. Cause a lot of it won't work for your shop. A lot of it will. And most of it, to be honest, usually doesn't it's like, I, I can't put that. I can't take what this other shop's doing and, and, and mold it into my shop. It's like, well then don't just keep looking and eventually you'll find something, you'll find something else, you'll find something else and you keep putting it in, you know? And then eventually you you're you're different than what you started <laughs> yeah it's, it's just amazing how that works you know well, I, in the um, comments on the side i posted the link to oh, okay. the w- one day of call tracking and uh so when you go through here this is um i'm looking through it right now So these are all keywords that have come through your um, yeah I, Google I learned, tracking. Yeah, I learned what keywords to use, what medium to use, and all of that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another big thing that's overlooked is is staying up on your Google AdWords because Google is just getting smarter and smarter every year, every day. And when it comes to marketing, anyway, it's it's amazing how much is missed. And I mean, I do it. I miss it all the time too. I it's like a month goes by and you're like, Oh my God, I haven't looked at that. <laughs> How many of us actually spend the time to sit in the office every day and like go through all these things that we're supposed to be going through. It's like, it's, it's, it's almost impossible, you know, unless everything's going perfectly well in the shop and you can just sit in the office and go through your list of to do stuff, you know, and then some of it, you just got to sit down for a second and not do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, that, that became my job. The last uh, I, I would say three years of my career um, that I did exactly that. I sat in the office and tweaked our website, uh, tweaked our uh, search terms that I would bid on. Uh, like I quickly learned the most popular uh, search term was transmission repair. And uh, working with it every day, I learned how the bidding process worked and uh, I would bid crazy amounts for transmission repair. And because of the, uh, what they call the second bid method or the Dutch bid, I would only pay a penny more than what the second highest bidder bid on the the search term. And I I was bidding like crazy amounts, like $75 a click on uh, transmission repair, but I never paid near, even near that. and I would only pay a penny more than what the second highest bidder uh, would offer, and I'd get top position. And that was a big thing I learned by sitting in the office and, you know, just 
concentrating on it and how it worked and trying to learn. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. I could actually control the business. We would get so slammed. Uh, I would actually turn Google AdWords off. I would pause it uh, because we just had more work than what we could uh, stand. And then as we started getting caught up, I would unpause the the AdWords campaign and then start getting calls again. And because uh, it, it was crazy. It was it, it's amazing how much control it gave you. It gave you over your business. Yeah, and, and the the amount of um, the amount of actually work that you do in the office versus like being out on the floor and trying to get the work done. Right, the old adage of like working in your business, not or working on it, not in it. Right. Yeah. And like learning that stuff is like such a critical point, and it kind of folds back into of the estimating process. And if you're not tracking this stuff, like how do you know if what you've bid or what your estimates you're estimating is correct, unless you're looking at the numbers on the back end, Right. And it's like, how long should this job be taking? How long can I, you know, what should I be charging? Is this even right? Are my text slow? Right. Or is, is the, is, is, is the estimating process wrong? There's so many variables, you know, and then of course you start dealing with the rust belt and it's like, well, you just throw that labor guide out the window because it's got nothing to do with it. The yeah, job takes what it takes, but. Yeah. Labor guide is just a suggestion because uh, I tried to hire only the best techs and uh, I had to have confidence in the amount of uh, time they would spend on something. And I noticed if it was a new transmission that we were unfamiliar with, um, even though they're a good tech, they would take much longer than normal because over the course of time, uh, that time would just slowly get reduced in the amount of time they actually spent because they get more proficient at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like just the nature of the beast. And I think in this day and age, you know, there's so many different vehicles. It's so hard to look at a labor guide or look at a standard procedure or standard process because every day you're going to get something new in, you know, and even if you're an an expert or a specialty shop, there's still going to be something that comes to the door that you and your techs have never seen before. And you can't rush that. Well, there's also the opposite, you know, jobs that we have done before, but we absolutely hate it because it's just such a pain in the ass. And those jobs, uh, I would write high estimates. Uh, If I didn't really want to do the job, I never said no. I would just shoot a super high estimate and uh, let the customer say no. And uh, that's... That's pretty much, uh, we were high estimates on all the Europeans. And because uh, the Europeans are a real pain in the butt, you know, to us. They're not so much nowadays because um, like the ZF transmissions coming in more and more American vehicles. And uh, it's, you know, that's becoming a common one. But uh, back in the day, well, we would bid ZFs, you know, way high. And because we didn't really want to do it to begin with. And uh, if we did it, we got paid very well. Yeah, if it's um, something out of your wheelhouse, something that you don't stock parts for or, or whatever, whatever changes the procedure of it, right? It's like some of them, 
Yeah. I mean, personal preference even. <laughs> it doesn't have to necessarily yeah. even be a statistical thing. It's just like, I don't like working on those cars because I don't like them. <laughs> just, yeah. It's, that's the way it was with the most Europeans. You know, none of the techs liked them. I didn't like them. Um, because before we were able to reprogram uh, Europeans, we would have to end up running the vehicle to the dealer to get it reprogrammed. And that was a pain. And uh, uh, But now that's changing. That's more and more people are getting where they could reprogram European units. Yeah, and I mean, then every plastic component on them end up, ends up breaking, and then you got to order all these special, because no one has the stuff in stock, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I've always just stayed away from the Euro European stuff. I just I just say no to it. Like I'm not. It's we don't we don't do that. We don't do those. So yeah, yeah. I mean, bidding it high and and hoping it goes away or just saying no to it. I'd rather just say no to it because then you know, I th- in this day and age, I think the, the the reviews is another problem too. I've had so much slack and had reviews put up about estimating too high about. Not even completing the process, but or completing the repair, but just that that the estimate was too high. So you get a bad review because you quoted too much money. It's like that's and like you said, that's just that was standard practice ten years ago. Like you just if you didn't want to do the job, you just quoted it high and hoped it walked out the door. And I don't think anybody realizes that. Like, look, I I estimated this price because I don't really want to do it, but I will if you can't find anybody else. Right? That was like the thought process, but now you do that and you get a negative review or get this, someone bad mouths you. Oh, he's just super expensive. It's like, <laughs> well, so I'll just I say no. <laughs> I never did have that happen because I'm old school. We wouldn't give an estimate without selling an RDI first. And an RDI is a remove, disassemble and inspect because we wouldn't know what parts we were going to need till we opened it up. That's true. I mean, and, uh, I would sell the RDI first, and once we got it apart and I wrote the estimate, if the customer approved it, uh, we would just uh, credit, give them uh, full credit for the RDI fee to where the RDI didn't cost anything. And uh, But the estimate was still high. Yeah, I, in the transmission field in, in specific, that's the hardest thing to do an RDI or a TDI or to get pull it out and then disassemble it to get a price because everybody wants the price because you can go online and you can look up these prices of any online distributor of transmissions, right? Well, I can get it online for this much. So is it going to be more than this? I don't know. I got to, I've got to tear it apart. <laughs> I got to see what's broken. Yep. I can make, I can guess, but every time you guess, you always, there's always something that pops up, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's like, it's such a tough situation to have a, a vehicle dismantled on the shop and then the transmission completely torn down on the bench and then say, Hey, it's going to be X amount. And they say, Oh no, I found someone to do it cheaper. Oh, well, they pay the RDI fee and they right. go to some, somebody cheaper and that other shop. Uh, should reduce their labor a corresponding amount because the RDI has already been done. Yeah, uh, I mean, you you would hope so, but then that rolls into like the general auto repair where someone diagnoses a vehicle and they come into the shop and say, hey, I need an O2 sensor. Why do you need an O2 sensor? Well, because X, XYZ auto repair said I needed an O2 sensor. Okay, well, 
you put the O2 sensor and it still doesn't fix the code, come to find out the wires chafed on the back of the head, right? Because they didn't, you know, they, they didn't do it, didn't voltage drop the wire. They didn't diagnose it correctly. So it's just, it's just tough because the next shop is usually not going to take that off the top. And then it puts you in the situation of handing back the client a big box of parts. Here's all your stuff, you know, um, hopefully everything's there, you know, it's just a tough situation. So then you, like you said, you end up under quoting yourself and underbidding it just so you can get the job done. So you're not stuck in this, this weird situation of, of charging them to basically disassemble their vehicle. And then you look at the other side of it. Okay. From now on, I'll just bid this, this transmission rebuild at this cost because the last one needed this, this extra amount of parts, but now you're over quoting all your transmissions and you're losing all your jobs because your price is too high. So, like, well, you, we didn't do a lot of Europeans in, in our area. Uh, we're in a suburb of Salt Lake City. Uh, Europeans, uh, I got the, a list of registered vehicles in the state and Europeans in the entire state of Utah uh, was only 6% of the vehicle population. But we were in more of an affluent area, and in our just our area of Draper, Utah, uh, it was eight percent. So we didn't get a lot of calls on Europeans. I mean, we would get uh, it maybe be one, possibly two a month, maybe. I mean, there'd be months we wouldn't get any calls for European work. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Depending, I mean. It comes in threes, you know? Yeah. You don't see something for months and then all of a sudden three of them in a row come through the walk through the door. Yeah, yeah but the, there's there's states like uh, Florida and California and New York where the European vehicle population is quite high. Yeah, that's true. And, and um, when I first saw the numbers, I thought, man, that can't be. I see more uh, Europeans on the road than, you know, 6%. And then what I finally determined over time is that um, if it was just a normal American vehicle, it was just traffic. But if it was a European vehicle, it was a head turner, and I took notice. And uh, and that's why it seemed like it was more European than the 6% in the state. Hmm. But, Interesting. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, somebody goes by and a, BMW or Audi or something, you take notice, but they go buy a Chevrolet truck or something. It's just traffic. Yeah, that's a fair point. If yeah. It, yeah. I mean, that's probably why a lot of Euro shops do really well when they specialize in just in just the Europeans. Um, obviously, they probably have a fairly decent uh, ARO and making, making money yeah. on it, but then it yeah. attracts the same vehicles, you know, you, you see a shop with a bunch of those vehicles parked out front, you know, we have a classic car division. I feel like I get more, I get more, um, I get more people noticing us having those cars out in the parking lot than anything else. You know, you get a few hot rods and classic cars sitting out in the parking lot and people just show up just to look at them. <laughs> like yeah. it's a car show, you know? So it, it definitely, there's definitely something to say about that. Yeah. Well, what we tried to specialize in wasn't any, any particular uh, brand of vehicle or anything, we try to specialize in vehicles 10 years old and newer. And, uh, and in our area, which like I said before is affluent, uh, 
10 year old and newer cars were the majority of the population. And, uh, cause they're worth fixing. Uh, people usually have the money. If they don't have the money, they got the credit and, uh, getting paid for those jobs just, uh, didn't seem to be a problem. Uh, not only that, because they were 10 years old or newer, uh, the rusty bolts that break off were almost nil. And, uh, they were just easier jobs to work on because they were cleaner and all of them were uh, usually uh, virgin vehicles. They had never been into they, you know, you work on older vehicles, the transmission had been done months before and it was a hack job and holy moly. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That, that's a pain. Yeah. Who, who knows who rebuilt it the first time? Cause if it's a Chevy truck, it's done and it's, it's been through at least one if it's over 10 years old. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so that's who true. knows Who knows what they put inside the trans? So you never know what you're going to find when you open it up. Yeah. Well, the six-speed GMs were just starting to come into our shop uh, in 2015. And, uh, and that's the year I sold the shop. And so we never did... Uh, we got a lot of CVTs, but we didn't get a lot of, um, you know, the seven to 10 speed transmissions. It was mostly the six speed GM. Yeah. That was probably about the time. That was about the time GM was on strike and you couldn't get the pumps or the bell housings with, with one and the same, but that was about that time, right? Yep. About that time. And, um, and, the timing of my retirement, uh, as it turned out, was a blessing because I, you know, I'm a member of several several Facebook groups uh, that are transmission specialists, and I'm just reading horror story after horror story, um, you know, problems that they have after overhaul, and I'm like, oh brother, I'm glad I'm not in that mess. Yeah, <laughs> it is, and even even moving into like more of the remanufactured, you know, um, business plan and just, and just having those replaced instead of tearing down and rebuilding everyone that comes into the shop. Um, I, I still get plenty come back, you know, from reputable remanufacturing companies. It's just bad engineering, bad designing. There's just nothing you can do about it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, when you're when you're dealing with these six speeds and GM goes on strike and you can't get the parts for them, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, and right now with, with the 66 RFEs with Chrysler and the 68 RFEs, you can't buy them. Like you, the dealers on national back order, all the parts are on back order. Uh, I got, I got a friend that works at a local dealer here, a Dodge dealer um, in town. And he's got two or three of those trucks sitting in the lot with nothing they can do. <laughs> it's just, we just have to wait. We just wait. Like you're waiting. Like, yeah, well, it's, it's under warranty. So they can't sublet it out, you know, because I've, I've started rebuilding those because you can't buy them. Right. So I was like, hey, well, send them to me. I'll take care of them. No, can't because it's under warranty. So it has to be through, through Chrysler, through Stellantis. And there's a national back order. So they can't get parts. It's like, what does the client do? What are you talking about? You just took away his, his, his Dodge Ram 2500, 3500 diesel. It's not exactly a truck that can be, you know, easily replaced. <laughs> you, it's it's not like they just need to take the kids to school. It's like this is their work truck, you know, like this yeah. is what they bought 
for a business is like, that's usually what those trucks are for. It's not for driving around town. Uh, it's usually for work. And it's like, you just took away their livelihood and said, sorry, I don't know what to, to, to do. We don't, we don't have those. Can't get them. Get a wait. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it is. Um, but I got out of the industry, uh, when I sold our business and we didn't have logistics problems. We didn't have supply problems, but I'm reading about it every day about people having, uh, like you said, trucks, uh, having them for months in their parking lot, you know, trying to get parts. And, uh, yeah, that, that wasn't so when I was in the industry. Yeah. And it's not, it's not directed necessarily transmission only of course, general auto repairs. I mean, it's just everything. It's everything. It's right every, now. every, everything. And, uh, it's taking longer to get stuff. I mean, have you read the news story about the Panama canal drying up and ships get to where they can't pass through? Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a major headache. And now, uh, East coast ships that would normally come on the East, uh, excuse me, the West coast are now getting diverted, uh, to the east coast and uh, yeah then you got to put them on a on a on a trucker and now they want to make uh you know electric semis and it's like this is just just a snowball of just problems. yeah well i i i don't envy people in the industry today i do not envy them not one bit yeah i mean i feel every there's always challenges and when you talk about the auto industry it's 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 in it affects everybody there's not many other industries other than the medical field that really affects everybody right um i mean you could you could probably pull an argument to to say any sort of blue collar work yeah sure everything that you eat drink comes on a truck but ultimately that trucks is in the auto industry right so everything always reverts back to starting as the auto industry and um yeah, the challenges that were faced, it's 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 amazing how there isn't enough. Um, I'm trying to find the right words for it, and I just I just don't have the words for it. <laughs> it's it's amazing we don't get the respect like we just don't get the respect we feel we all would deserve, and it pushes a lot of people out of the industry, right? It it, it does, makes it not appealing, and then you stack all these issues that we were just talking about on top of that, and it's like, who would want to get into this industry, you know? <laughs> but the sense yeah. of pride and accomplishment that you get at the other end of it is why you stay into it, why you do it. And then when you really look at, this does affect everybody, you know? And then it really goes back to, like, the beginning of our conversation about, like, making sure that you charge enough. Yeah. That, <laughs> because yeah. that's the reason, that's what it all comes down to is money, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, because if, if you're uh, underestimating jobs, uh, that's the type of situation where you got plenty of work, but you're not making any money. And uh, that's, that's a hard way to be. And I think the key to it is uh, writing uh, accurate estimates and and knowing what your costs are and uh and with knowing what your costs are you can manage your profitability so what was your what was your process when it came in when it comes to the estimating um 
it would depend if we've done the job before. Um, it, if it was a common job, like say the 4L60E, it was uh, 1444 labor plus parts. And uh, that was pretty much a constant because it was such a common transmission. And whereas if it wasn't a common transmission, I would just weigh everything. I would talk to the rebuilder to see how comfortable they are on it. And uh, he and I would come up with a time. And we did all this behind the scenes, like I said earlier. We, we didn't do the calculations on, on the estimate. There would just be a lump sum uh, of, like, say, 1444 labor. And um, it, it wouldn't say how many hours or how much an hour, that type of thing. Right. Okay. So yeah, keep, I mean, that that's an important thing too. And I feel like that's a easy, not a cop out, but it, it's a way of explaining to the client, you know, oh, well it's going to be X amount because it takes this amount of time. And I don't, I, I'm on your side. I don't think that's the way to do it. I think you just, this is what it costs. This is what the job is. Right. Yeah. And there's a labor guide to get us in the ballpark. Right. Yeah. And then, and then that way you can monitor and see if your techs are being productive, and and then incentivize them and pay them if they're going above and beyond what the industry standard is. But it's like, what is the standard? You know, um, yeah. And then when it comes to like with your with your process of estimating, you got like trans cooler flush, right? You got to add that on, and sometimes that's not on the estimator. It takes time to hook up the flush machine, flush the cooler out, and now we're getting into programming. So now you have this extra time of programming, and whether you use a remote programmer or you use the J2534 pass-through and program it yourself in-house, there's so many other things that I don't think are, are, are accounted for. You know, and, and that, that goes into general repair too. You know, there's cleaning. There's If the crank seal was leaking and it contaminated the timing belt, well, you need to clean all that stuff, you know? And it's, there's no cleaning tab. You can't, there's not like a little thing on the, on the motor guide or the Mitchell guide to say, oh, we have to clean. Here's a half hour, you know, but you also don't know that until you pop the timing cover off, you know, yeah. and same with the transmission. When you talk about valve bodies, like if you, if that thing blew up and the planetaries came apart, you know, you gotta, I mean, you gotta work that valve body a lot more than if it was just a standard, you know, standard overhaul. <laughs> yeah. And so you got three or four hours of pulling valves and they're all stuck because there's metal everywhere. It's, it's like, how do you build that into the, to the job? And I mean, for me, I just, I would just eat the time. Like it's my time. I'd rather just get this thing done. I don't want to make the call and add another $500 on because I got to go through the valve body because we don't want to be the guy that feels like we're ripping anybody off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Once we, once we issued a quote, it was like written in stone. If there was anything else we found afterwards, we would just eat it. Right. We, right. we all, we always stuck by our estimates. Right. And because the customer was courteous enough to let us do an RDI. And if after an RDI, we miss something, then that's just on us and we eat it. Yeah. I feel like I was never, um, I guess smart enough to do the RDI. I just tried to, estimate everything as like a worst case scenario, you know, and well, I had too many times most, I'd get stuck in the middle of a, of a teardown. Yeah. That's what most people do. And, uh, it's, it's how jobs get underbid. And when you underbid jobs, it makes your technicians look totally inefficient. Yeah. And, uh, when the real problem is, uh, writing the estimate. Yeah. And me, and in this case, I was the, uh, 
I was the technician that was looking efficient. <laughs> but I mean, that that helps the situation too. I've never hired a builder. I've never had a builder working under me or for me. Um, so all the time, you know, with the transmission rebuilding, it was me doing the work. So it's an easy justification to just eat my own time. If I got to stay late, I got to stay late. That's what all business owners do, right? That's what auto auto shops owners, we work till midnight and we burn the candle at both ends. And it's just like the stigma that you're like, oh, this is just normal. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. But over the years, I've realized that I was very wrong. (laughs) It's not how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Well, what I did in the early years, yeah, I was a builder uh, and I did the building. I ran the front counter. I ran the office and I managed the R&R technicians. And then I realized I made the most money when I was on the front counter. And, uh, and over year, a few years, even that morphed into finally ending up in the back office and uh, working on the marketing aspect of the business. But I, every time I, I would change uh, uh, career, so to speak, uh, I would make more money. Uh, one of the best things I ever did was hire my first builder. And the first mistake you tend to make is you try to have them build like you build. And when that, that's a mistake and let them build and, you know, just turn them loose. And, uh, I mean, it all worked out in the end, but I, I had a front counter person. I had, uh, rebuilders. I had R and R technicians. And I pretty much, I made the most money when I was in the back office managing all our marketing and advertising. That's, that's when that was the maximum amount. And, uh, and like I said, every move I made, uh, I would make a little bit more, you know, when I'm, when I came off the bench and moved to the front counter, I made a little bit more. Um, when I moved from the front counter to the back office, I made a little bit more. And um, I found the place where I was the most profitable for the business uh, and not my own desires. Yeah, just stay, staying out of everybody's way. Yeah. <laughs> In the, a sense. <laughs> the, the last last builder I hired um, was out of Phoenix, and he answered an ad. And uh, I ended up paying him 104000 a year. And... Uh, but he was a good builder and he was very productive and uh, he did right. And that's another thing. If you underpay your help, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a struggle. I think in the beginning, it's something that it's taken me a long time to, to not just realize, but to actually implement. And it's just, just look at the numbers and pay them accordingly. And stop trying to hire technicians based the same way you look for a can of brake clean, right? And a sense of like, how much, how much do I have to buy to get a discount on brake clean? So you want to negotiate the terms with, with your technicians. Hey, how much do you want? Well, I'll pay you this, right? And you like want to have this negotiation to try to save a couple bucks when it's like in reality is like, no, pay them whatever they're asking. Yeah. And then set your expectations that, hey, I paid you what you're asking, so I need you to produce this, right? Yeah. Um, it's a hard thing to do, though. Yeah. Well, if, if, you, if you can't pay top wage because you're not charging top money, then 
that's a formula for disaster. If you're, like I said earlier, if you're underestimating your work, you can't afford to pay top wage. Now, what do you say to the to the kind of naysayers that say, "Well, I can't charge anymore because I'll lose all my clients." Um, that that's a myth because uh, <laughs> it is a myth. <laughs> the the transmission business, the business model of transmission repair is much like the collision industry to where it's what I call a one and done deal. Like they're virtually every customer is a first time customer and, uh, and, and it's a one time customer. I mean, if, if you get repeat business, it's either somebody with multiple vehicles and bad luck or, uh, it's a warranty job. <laughs> that's Just, very true. No, that's very yeah. true. Yeah, repeat business is not a big thing in the transmission or the collision industry. I mean, it's just it's just rare that it happens. And uh, that's a good point and a good correlation because that's one of the things I've uh, I've noticed as well is is our customer retention is uh, not I guess where it should be. You know, working with a coach and you and they have the industry standard numbers and you're trying to you know mitigate these numbers and seeing the the retention rate of some of the clients is. Well, it's like, well, a lot of it, like you said, they're, they're one and done. They're coming in, they're spending six, seven grand to have their transmission replaced. And then, yeah, you, you probably shouldn't see them for a couple of years, <laughs> but adding the general auto repair aspect onto it. Yeah. We want to start seeing them a little bit more, but it's a good point to bring up because it makes it difficult for marketing. You're, you're constantly on new customer acquisition, right? Yes. Yeah. Constantly. A, yeah. And the general repair industry is just the opposite. Uh, you're you're into customer retention, and uh, it's not a one and done deal in general repair. It's yeah. a, it's more about forming relationships and doing multiple uh, repairs over the lifetime of that customer. Yeah, but even even based on the transmission side, you still want a relationship with with the client. You still want to make sure that you're on speaking terms when they leave because they want to you want them to spread the word right and and tell their friends and family and refer and and whatnot but um it's just different because you don't get that immediate result for customer for client retention you know it's it's difficult because it's something that you're not going to hear or see for years later until they tell a friend or a neighbor you know and it's a catastrophic failure every time that every time they come in it's a catastrophic failure it's not hey my brakes are making a little bit of a squeak. Can I get in next week? It's like, hey, I'm stuck on the side of the road. Can I bring it in right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's either me or the other shop. Like, they're not going to wait to bring it to you. They're going to find somebody else that can do it right now. Yeah, and that gets back to managing your advertising and marketing to where when you do get so backed up, you have some control over that. It's just... It's not like the phone constantly ringing. You have no way to, you know, trim the phone numbers back. And uh, it just, you know, like you said, uh, you know, Google AdWords is great. It's it's kind of the elephant in the room. And there's other ways to market your business, but that was our primary method. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and the day and age of internet and everyone being on their phone and on the computer, it's, you, you definitely want to be, you don't want to ignore that. You got to be on that step one. Yeah. 
yeah, then obviously have good reviews and, and everything else that comes along with it. Have a good website. But I just feel like with the advent of the AdWords where it's come in the last 10 years and there's so many companies out there now that are proving to put you on the top of Google and keep your Google AdWords relevant. And uh, there's something to be said about taking that and doing it yourself. Yeah. You know, because you, you, you know what the vehicles you want in your shop. And sometimes the automation just doesn't work. And, and like say, taking it by the reins and like doing it yourself and going through those keywords and, and manipulating what's going on in there. There's something to say for that. I mean, if you're doing it right, but yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a little bit of a, of a learning curve, I think. Yeah. Cause, um, keywords that I did not bid on were like leaks, noises, and vibrations. Uh, because they were always time-consuming, small-ticket repairs. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I would get the jobs or the, use the keywords that are the most profitable. And, uh, and when you're looking through the profitable ones, you're looking at um, the, the back end of the work. You're, you're, you're wanting the transmission repair, the transmission rebuild. Yeah. That's the idea, I, right? Yeah, I would, um, my plan was actually variations of transmission repair. Uh, it would be transmission repair alone. And then I would also use uh, transmission repair with a uh, brand of vehicle preceding it. Like, uh, like say, uh, Chevrolet transmission repair, Ford transmission repair, uh, Chrysler transmission repair and things like that, but it would always be a variation of transmission repair. Right. Just manipulate it to target the ones that you're actually looking for. Yeah. And when I finally woke up about marketing, uh, location played a big, big deal in it. Uh, we were lucky enough to, uh, be in a town to where we were the only transmission shop. And we were right on the freeway with a traffic count of 240,000 cars a day. And uh, our front property line was 90 feet from I-15. And uh, just the traffic count was incredible. And being the only um, game in town, so to speak, as far as transmission repair, that was also beneficial because people would have to drive into Salt Lake to you know, find a competitor. And uh, we're in a suburb of Salt Lake, but we're on the outskirts. We're about 12, 12 miles from Salt Lake. Yeah, that helps too, because I'm sure a lot of the other local shops sent you all the work. And it's kind of back in the day and age of, and I've, I've, uh, I've noticed too, obviously with companies, LKQ, Jasper, ETE, uh, all the different remanufacturing companies, it makes it very available for a general auto repair shop to do a transmission replacement, right? Yeah, yes, so, they do. Yeah, and so like this division of, hey, I'm going to do transmissions and you stick to general auto repair, I feel like those days are coming, I mean, if they've not already come to an end. Um, I mean, I still get a lot of, and I'm sure you did too, everyone in the general auto repair field will just send you anything transmission related. Like yes. I, but I feel like now it's just they don't want to deal with it. Not because it logistically makes sense. They just, they've tried a few things. It's not working. Oh, you know what? Maybe you need to go to a transmission shop. And it's like, 
they're just copping out of it. Like I, they just don't want to see the, the repair through. They don't want to see the process through. It's like, if you're a good shop, you can definitely diagnose a transmission code, right? If, if, yeah. you, if, if you can go through and like, and do proper diagnostics, it doesn't matter if it's a transmission or an engine. It doesn't matter. Like if you, if you're good with a lab scope and you understand all that stuff, you should be able to figure out exactly what it is. But, um, I guess to my point is to base yourself only transmissions, I feel like you're shooting yourself in the foot a little bit because there's plenty of just general autos that are replacing transmissions. And that's going to be a huge chunk of your, of your work that, that you're not taking on. So why not, why not do a few water pumps? Why not do a few, you know, tune ups and brake jobs. And before you know it, you're rebuilding front ends and, um, just the evolution that I've seen in the last, uh, honestly, in the last five years, a lot of the shops in my area, like you walk in there and, nine out of 10 of them have transmissions sitting on their stands and they're putting, you know, installing them. So. Yeah. yeah well, that depends on the shop because in our particular shop, um, we had a large building, but we had a small shop space. Our shop space was only 3000 square foot and we had four lifts. And, um, even though it was a 5,500 square foot building, um, uh, the working area in the shop was only 3000 square feet. And so we didn't have the room to tie up a lift with the, with some general repair when we had a high dollar transmission job waiting. So we never, just in our particular situation, we never made that migration. If we would have had more room, we might have. Right. But, but uh, we were getting flooded with transmission work because I was, manipulating the AdWords program so well. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I I guess I just see it as you get a little slow and then you see some of your quotes going to a neighboring shop, right? And then you realize, well, they're just undercutting your price to put a reman in it and they're not looking at the numbers. So they don't realize they're only making 15% profit on this job. They just see a $6,000 ticket coming through their shop and they're like, oh yeah, that's great money. Like that's not great money. You may, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the percentages yeah. aren't there, but they just see a huge ticket. And as a general auto shop, like, oh, it's all about car count and it's all about getting your ARO up. So they see a yeah. transmission job and they're like, oh, let's take it. We can put that in and we can beat their price. And so they, they do that. And then now you're slow because all your work's going to a different, you know, to a, another shop and it's not even a transmission shop. So like, well, you know what? Yeah, we'll do some breaks. We'll, and it just kind of evolves that way. I mean, for me, that's how it's evolved anyway. Yeah. Well, what so. I did when it was slow, I mean, we normally uh, did AdWords within the five-mile radius of the shop. And when it got slow, I would expand that radius. And, uh, uh, and then we would, because of our location, we would start getting uh, out-of-state uh, calls we would get calls out of Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, and uh, the furthest radius I ever had was 100 miles. And that's when it was slow, and it didn't stay slow very long because once I expanded that, I started getting calls from everywhere. Yeah. And so that was another way to mitigate the, the slow times. Yeah. But it, uh, and it got to be, after a while, it got to be kind of fun to be able to have that much control over your business because, uh, generally speaking, most shops don't have that ability. And right. Yeah. It's either, it's either feast or famine. I mean, that's the way I grew up in the business. 
and then to finally learn that I could kind of control that, um, that seemed like a godsend to me. <laughs> yeah, I could. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, if you can, if you can control the ebb and flow of a shop in the auto industry, it's definitely a. That's a definitely a key component. Yeah, well, we could do a whole podcast on AdWords alone, and that's that's a deep, deep subject. I could, I could imagine. In my in my small uh, workings of trying to figure that out, I've, I've I could definitely agree with you on that one. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a tough it, tough one. It, ta- it takes a lot of time. I mean, if you're learning it on your own, it takes a lot of time. And when you hire a marketing company to handle that for you, they don't divulge the hows and whys of it. They just do it. And uh, I kind of just learned the hard way, but. Uh, but that's about all I have to share for for this podcast. Yeah, it sounds good. And closing notes, the most important thing is charge what you're worth. Yep, I yep. agree. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Larry. I appreciate your time. Okay. Well, I appreciate you, Jimmy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course.